Our scripture, uh, our sermon passage this morning is going to be coming from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through uh, 37. So if you'd want to turn there uh, with me, we're going to be taking a look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's going to be in Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. All right, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Hear the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went, uh, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, which is truth, and it is the only truth that we look to, for you are the one who spoke the world into being, and you have spoken to us in your word. And so, Father, uh, what we need uh, is the Holy Spirit to come and open up our hearts and our minds to receive what it is you have for us in your word this morning. So, Holy Spirit, open up our eyes, open up our minds to be able to see and receive what it is that you have for us. Help us to see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, and Lord, stir us up to uh, walk in his ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever asked the wrong question before and needed to be corrected? Maybe this has happened in a conversation that you were having at work or with a friend or with a spouse. You could have said something like, you know, why am I so bad at fill in the blank? And your friend gently corrects you by saying, well, you know, the better question to probably ask is, how can I improve in this area? You see, this reframing of a question shifts our perspective and is something that we, uh, some, that we often need when we find ourselves either asking the wrong questions or asking a question that, that isn't necessarily helpful. And this is exactly what we see Jesus doing to this lawyer who asks the question, who is my neighbor? You see, this lawyer comes to Jesus with a desire to justify himself, to say, I have done all that is required to inherit eternal life. I have this claim. God, you owe this to me. And 
what Jesus does is he responds to this man by graciously giving him this parable to show him what it truly means to love your neighbor as yourself, one of the greatest commandments that we are given. Then, at the end of this parable, Jesus flips the question around on the lawyer and he asks him, who in the parable proved to be a neighbor? You see, what Jesus masterfully does is say, the real question that you need to be asking is how am I to be a good neighbor? And it is this question that I think is important for us to reflect upon as we enter into a new year. We know that some of the biggest conversations or the biggest talk that surrounds a new year consists of resolutions, right? Something or some things that we vow to incorporate into our lives for the betterment of ourselves. If you're like my grandma, she's just starting a new diet, which means that it's going to affect uh, my parents and how they eat. So they're going on a diet too. You can congratulate them later. My hope and prayer is that after this sermon, what we will see is that one of the best and hardest resolutions that we can make is to strive to be a better neighbor. But before we dive into what being a good neighbor actually consists of, we have to know that we must uh, to know that being a good neighbor is grounded in something. It's grounded in um, having first been shown, been having someone be a good neighbor to, to us. And that person who has been the very best neighbor to us is Jesus. And we actually see that in this parable. So upon first reading this parable, you might identify yourself as the priest and the Levite, the people who are so consumed maybe with themselves that uh, they just pass by this half-dead man on the road. But we must first identify, uh, see ourselves as this beaten up and half-dead man on the side of the road, beaten up by the consequences of our sin, the consequences of despising God and seeking to live however we see fit, living against his laws in desperate need of someone to come along to pour out their love and mercy upon us and to heal us. And Jesus is this good Samaritan who looks upon us in tenderness, who seeks us out and heals us by lavishing his love and his mercy upon us. This truth is beautifully captured in the words of one of my favorite hymns entitled, In Tenderness He Sought Me, where it goes like this, In tenderness he sought me, weary and sick with sin. And on his shoulders brought me back to his fold again. He washed my bleeding sin wounds. He poured in oil and wine. He whispered to assure me, I've found thee, thou art mine. The call that the Lord God places on his people who he has rescued and he has called mine is to love your neighbor as yourself. And this passage illustrates for us what it looks like to be a good neighbor. It is to show mercy. And therefore, the big idea of this passage that we are going to explore this morning is that because the Lord God has lavishly poured out his mercy upon us in Jesus Christ, we must be active in showing mercy to our neighbors. And so the rest of this sermon will, be, will focus on the three ways we can be active in showing mercy to our neighbors by taking a look specifically at the Samaritan and his, uh, and his actions. And so the first way we are called to show mercy to our neighbor is by being willing to look upon our neighbors with compassion. And compassion is showing care and concern and empathy for another person, particularly in their suffering. And compassion is the first key difference mentioned about the Samaritan in comparison with the priest and the Levite. Look with me again to verses 31 through 33. 
Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And so before we go any further, we have to understand what's amiss in this parable. You see, the priest and the Levite are the spiritual leaders of Israel. They are called to serve in the temple, which in Old Testament theology served as the visible representation of God with his people. And because they were called to serve in the temple daily, that meant that they had the special privilege of dwelling in God's presence daily. They were able to to enjoy him. They were called to intercede on behalf of the people, to teach his law to the people of Israel, to maintain the, and to maintain the temple. Therefore, if anyone understood compassion, it should be these guys. They are steeped in scripture. They are steeped in worship of God. The, uh, the, the priest is the one who would provide the, or would prepare the sacrifices. He knew what it meant to have sin covered graciously by the Lord. He knew compassion. But what Jesus is doing in this parable is providing a commentary on the state of the leadership in Israel. They are neglecting the deeper things of God. And some make the case that these religious leaders were just doing what they knew how to do. They they passed by the man because they were concerned with keeping in line with the regulations for serving in the temple. They were just doing their job. And that would include having no um, contact with a corpse or touching any sort of blood or bodily fluid. However, according to Jesus, these leaders are actually not going to the temple to work. Uh, Or I'm sorry, yeah, they're not going to the temple to work. What they are doing is they are going down from Jerusalem. And that's significant for us to understand because Jerusalem is a city that was built up on a hill, much like many ancient Near Eastern cities. And so... The terminology of coming down from Jerusalem would mean that they are moving away from the temple, that they are finished with their temple duties and are going back to, well, Jericho here. And so for them to move out and go and help uh, this, this half-dead Jewish man, what they, would, they wouldn't be jeopardizing their, their temple service at all. Jesus is exposing the callousness of Israel's leaders. And it is a callousness that, honestly, we can easily slip into as well. But we also need to understand the relationship between Jews and Samaritans was hostile. It had been hostile for centuries. This this deep-rooted bitterness between these two people groups goes all the way back to 722 B.C., Uh, That was when the Israelites were exiled from their homeland. The the nation of Assyria came in, conquered their land, brought them out, uh, and then gave their land over to to foreign powers. And eventually, uh, the the nation of uh, the uh, Samaritans came into that area. And so, the Jews of Jesus' day hated the Samaritans. They treated them as non-humans. They, they held, uh, their testimony held no weight in court. They were excluded from worshiping the Lord in the temple. And if you remember, Jesus comes and he cleansed the temple. If you remember what's on his lips where he says, this house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. The nations included Samaria, uh, the Samaritans. And uh, their, their testimony, like I said, they held no weight in court. And they were so despised that the, the Jews wouldn't share their, their silverware with them or even share a public restroom with them. In fact, Samaritan was a, a racial slur on the lips of, um, of a, a Jewish person. And so 
we, even today, are not so unfamiliar with such intense uh, racial tension. We've seen this throughout history in, in many different areas. The Jews, as God's chosen people, however, they were called to be a blessing to the nations. And yet, these Jews were quick to acknowledge the Samaritans as enemies. And so is the same for the Samaritans. However, this Samaritan does the very opposite. Look at this. Instead, uh, he, he looks, uh, instead of looking upon this half-dead Jew uh, and thinking that scumbag got what he deserved, Jesus says he looks upon him and has compassion. The Samaritan sees the pain his neighbor is in and puts to death their differences and is moved to empathize with him. You see, recognizing and seeking to understand someone's pain is an aspect of compassion that enables us to better interact and serve those who we love, to serve those who we might even consider our enemies, to serve those who have, who have deeply hurt us. There is no one here who is a stranger to pain. I mean, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, chronic or acute Pain is a natural consequence of living in this fallen world. And it's important that we know that it's not something that God delights in. Physical pain is often more often uh, easy to see. But what we cannot often see is the emotional pain that our neighbors are experiencing, the emotional pain that maybe we even cause uh, those who we love. In fact, according to a scientific study, the very same brain centers that interpret and feel physical pain also become activated during uh, the experience of emotional rejection. And this actually has a shaping effect on us. In order for us to understand that pain then, the pain that our neighbors are carrying or the pain that we, we are even often carrying, we must listen intently to what our friends and neighbors say about their pain. We must not be quick to dismiss those cries. Right now in our country, there are those who are crying out in pain. They have, uh, people are talking about the pain that they have experienced for generations. And one way we can show compassion to them is by putting aside our presuppositions and listening to their stories, empathizing with them in their pain and mourning together over the effects that sin has had on our world. This is something that we actually have the freedom to do as Christians, the freedom to mourn together with those who are in pain because we know the effects that sin has and the way that it has marred this world. But it's not just the voices at large that we need to listen to. It's the voices of those we have weekly or even daily contact with. Who here knows your pain? Whose pain have you taken the time to listen to? Thomas Watson, uh, an an old preacher back in the 1600s, I think, writes this. It is a sinful modesty for Christians that they are not more free with their ministers and other spiritual friends in unburdening themselves and opening the sores and troubles of their souls to them. You see, in listening to our neighbor's pain, what we are doing is walking in harmony with our God and how he has always acted. We are reflecting his glory to them. Listen, it is the cries of the people of Israel that move the Lord out to rescue them out from Egypt. If you would look with me to uh, Exodus 3, chapter, uh, verses 7 and 8, uh, we'll read this. There we go. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, 
And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land flowing, uh, uh, out of that land to a good land and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of all those wonderful um, people. Uh, <laughs> but also we see the Lord respond to cries of pain or cries of distress in Psalm 18 as, the, as David poetically describes the Lord standing up from his throne, his cry rising up to him and the Lord standing up and doing something, acting on behalf of his people. And it is for us through Jesus Christ that we are welcome to bring our pain before the Lord and to ask for his help. Free to intercede on behalf of our neighbors who are experiencing pain, to mourn together with them in prayer before the Lord, and to ask the Lord to bring healing. And to know that we have the hope that one day there will be no more pain, sorrow, suffering, or death. Another way we are called to show compassion to our neighbors is in our dialogue with them as well. We, we are not oblivious to the fact that we are living in highly polarized times and in that stepping into this new year, it's going to be, the, this polarization is maybe could even increase. And, and um, the problem with polarization oftentimes is that it, is, it inhibits good dialogue across party lines. But one way that our Christian witness can shine forth is in the way we conduct ourselves with our dialogue with others. As compassion requires us to be good listeners to others in their pain, it also requires us to be good listeners to others who have different opinions from us without quickly jumping to conclusions or quickly throwing out labels that breed contention. No matter what kind of conversation we're having, whether it's a political conversation, conversation on social policy, a theological conversation, we, have, uh, we, we need to understand that our conduct matters and our conduct can reflect God's glory. We have already experienced some, like how volatile conversations about mask wearing can be. We know that. And now we are about to enter into another period of difficult conversations with the COVID-19 vaccination. Let us strive to reflect the beauty of our, our Lord Jesus Christ through engaging compassionately in these conversations. And there are a few diagnostic questions I have for you that you can ask yourself in this regard as you are engaging, find yourself engaging in these conversations. Am I treating this person as a creature made in the image of God, given inherent dignity because God has made them, or am I quick to deface them just because they have a different opinion from me? Am I quick to ignore their thoughts? Am I quick to throw out a label? Or am I taking the time to just listen? But what we read in Leviticus 19 is to, to reason together with, um, with our brothers. And sisters, and so that's something that we should take seriously. Compassion requires us to draw near to our neighbors and to treat them with dignity. And this is exactly what the Lord does for us in Jesus Christ. You see, though Jesus, uh, though though He has been rejected by us, the Eternal Son took on flesh in order to empathize with our pain and to redeem us. And in doing so, He is treating us with the dignity that He created us with and that He placed upon us. Hebrews 4, uh, 15 to 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted we are, as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Walking in the footsteps of our Savior means being quick to exercise compassion. And it requires us to take action. This action of loving your neighbor sometimes comes as an inconvenience to us. 
However, we must be willing to be inconvenienced for our neighbor's sake. And that is my next point, that we must be willing to be inconvenienced for our neighbor's sake. Now, I must admit that having this willingness to be inconvenienced is not something that I uh, enjoy. It is probably one of the things I struggle with the most. I do not like being inconvenienced. You can just ask my parents. I, do not ha- I, like, to have, uh, I like to have the day go exactly how I put it uh, in my schedule, in my mind. Because I tend to think that if I deviate from that schedule, then what's going to happen is I'm not going to be able to accomplish the work that I set out to accomplish. And if I'm not going to be able to accomplish that work, my schoolwork is going to suffer. If my schoolwork continues to suffer, right, then I'm going to fail. And if I fail, then how will I be able to get a job? And if I won't be able to get a job, then how am I going to be able to support my future wife, right? There's a thought process that is a vicious spiral downwards, and it prevents me, honestly, it prevents me from having this willingness to be inconvenienced. But I'm sure you know this feeling as well. Even if you have a spouse or kids, which, uh, thank the Lord, right, has, he has put in our lives to help work out what it looks like to be inconvenienced, you still struggle with this sinful nature that is all about self, all about pursuing what we think will bring us our own happiness, But if we look at this parable, we see that a willingness to be inconvenienced is part of showing mercy, being active in showing mercy. While the priest and the Levite clearly saw this this man on the side of the road uh, as they traveled down away from Jerusalem and away from the temple, the only convenience that they experienced was having to move over to the other side of the road. That was it. Their willingness to be inconvenienced was for their own sake. They were perfectly fine with moving over as long as it served their own purposes. And we often do the same thing. But the willingness we are called to have is for the sake of our neighbor. Look, fueled by compassion, we see the Samaritan go out of his way to care. Look with me to verse 34. We read this. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. First, the Samaritan goes to him, right? He puts his journey on hold and is willing to take time out of his daily schedule to go and to minister aid to this man. He is not afraid to get dirty to help him. As he cleans and bandages his wounds, he's probably getting bloody in the process. But the Samaritan also puts his life at risk in doing this. Remember, the road that they're traveling down is, uh, um, is a place where it's easy for robbers to be hiding and uh, to who knows if they're still on the, same, on the same road waiting to attack again. Or something that's even more serious as well is that if this man dies under the Samaritan's care, the family could charge this Samaritan and they could call for his execution. But none of these factors deter the Samaritan from seeking to be merciful to this man. And in this, we actually see our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord Jesus, again, looks upon us with such tenderness and compassion and being sent by the Father willingly comes to be inconvenienced for our sake, to bestow mercy on us and deliver us from our sin. Jesus is willingly inconvenienced through the fact that he, he gets clothed in humanity, the omnipresent and omnipotent God confined to space and time. He is willingly, convenienced in that he, uh, in, willingly inconvenienced in that he created the world, and yet as he was here in the world, he had no place to lay his head, no place to call home. 
He was willingly inconvenienced and that having equality with God, he freely chooses to endure suffering rather than using this equality uh, for his own deliverance. We read of that in Philippians 2, 5 to 8. He is willingly inconvenienced in that being the God of life, as we sang, he lays down his life for the sake of his people who were once his enemies, who despised and rejected him so that we would receive mercy as he took wrath on our sins. Uh, the wrath that our sins deserved. And he did this not, uh, for the, for only for the very fact that he loves you. That is why he did this. The Father was delighted to plan our redemption and, the, and send Jesus on our behalf, and Jesus was delighted to come and to suffer in our place, suffer the deepest inconvenience for our sake. And the Holy Spirit has delighted to apply all the benefits of Christ's redemption to us, to you, so that you might be healed of your Wounds, so that you would have the hope of living with God in the land where all sad things become untrue, where, new, uh, where all things are made new, where there is no more sorrow, suffering, or death, because sin has fully been eradicated. This is what the Lord promises he will do for his people. And we read of this promise even uh, hinted at in Jeremiah thirty seventeen, where he says, where the, um, Jeremiah records, For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. So are you eager to walk in the footsteps of your Savior, Savior Jesus? Are you eager to show the beauty of Jesus to your neighbors? Then be willing to be inconvenienced for your neighbor's sake. You see, in the West, we place such a high value on time. We are probably all familiar with the aphorism that uh, was penned by uh, Benjamin Franklin that goes like this, time is money, right? If we're not using our time to work, then we're not going to be getting any money. But if this is the case, if we put such a high value on time here in the West, then just think about what setting aside time for your neighbor's sake would communicate to them. It would say to them that you are valued, that your life matters, that your well-being matters more to me than my time, that your well-being matters more to me than my life even. And that is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And what we are doing with this posture is we are seeing inconvenience as opportunities for service. It is a shift in perspective that is only fueled by gospel grace. And remember, we don't do this because we need God to love us. We do this actually out of the love that he has already shown to us. Listen, if if you're feeling convicted in this, much like I am, then I would want to encourage you to take your conviction to the Lord. Confess to him. Ask him to cultivate in your heart this willingness to be inconvenienced. Ask him to change your perspective, help you to see inconveniences as opportunities to serve. Because again, doing so, as we do that, we're walking the path of repentance. And And know that the Lord is delighted to hear your confession. He's delighted to guide you by the hand in repentance. That's part of the gift that Christ has given to you. You cannot cultivate this willingness on your own, no matter how hard you try. I'm sure you maybe if you have if that's part of your life is trying to do this, you you feel that. What we need is to have it worked in us by the Holy Spirit, and that is the promise God gives us that He will do these things. So so far, we have seen that uh, being active in showing mercy uh, to our neighbors consists in having a willingness. 
to look upon our neighbors with compassion and, uh, and to be inconvenienced for their sake. However, there is one final aspect to showing mercy that we witness the Samaritan uh, in the Samaritan's actions, and that is that we must be willing to use our God-given resources for our neighbor's good. We must be willing to use our God-given resources for our neighbor's good. Look with me again to verses 33 to 35. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The merciful actions that we witness uh, are the Samaritan take are actions that require him to use his own resources for the good of his neighbor. One commentator writes that the Samaritan may have even used pieces of his own clothing to make bandages. He used his own wine as a disinfectant and his own oil as a soothing lotion. He put the man on his own donkey pay the innkeeper out of his own pocket with a promise to pay more uh, if needed. And according to another commentator, the the amount that he paid, the two denarii, would uh, represent three weeks' worth of food for one person. The Samaritan is willing to pull out all of the stops uh, in order to be merciful to his neighbor. He is even shelling out a good portion of money for him. And the Lord God calls us to have this same willingness in regards to our resources. For this is loving our neighbor as ourselves. Or loving your neighbor as yourself, right? Remember that in keeping this command to love your neighbor as yourself, we are also keeping the first and greatest commandment. Because even as we read in verses uh, 27 through, uh, in verse 27, those two commands are connected. They're intertwined. Loving your neighbor reflects the fact, the love that you have for God. And when you love God, it should move you out to love your neighbor. These two commands are deeply intertwined. And again, because we are gods, we actually have the freedom to use our God-given resources for the good of our neighbors without worrying if we will have our needs met. Because in doing so, we are trusting our Father's promise that he knows our needs and he will provide for them. This is what glorifies him. This is what exercising our faith looks like. This is seeking first the kingdom of God. And Jesus says in Matthew 6.33 that in seeking first God's kingdom, we will have our needs met. It's a promise made to us. This is one aspect of the freedom that we have in Christ. We are free to be abundantly generous with our resources because the Father who gives all things out of his hand is our Father through Christ. And he is delighted to seek our good and that serves his glory as Jeff reminded us in his prayer. We must be quick to remember that our resources are not our own, right? They are God-given. For you cannot work your own job or your job without having the mental or physical faculties given to you by the Lord. And this is true no matter what job you hold, whether uh, you work, uh, even if you work a job that does not result in you getting paid monetarily, you still have God-given gifts that are meant to be used for the good of others. John Calvin puts it well when he writes this. Scripture teaches us that all the gifts we utilize are given to us by God, and they are given to us along with this law of our faith, that they may be put to use for the good of our neighbors. 
Whatever, therefore, a godly man or woman is able to do, they should do it for their brothers or sisters. You should consider your own interests only insofar as you set your mind on the general edification or building up of the whole church. Let this then be our rule for kindness and benevolence. We are merely stewards of whatever gifts God has given us in order to help our neighbors. We must give an account for our stewardship. And right stewardship is that which is fueled by the rule of love. And love is delighting in and seeking the good of another. And Paul writes in Romans 13, 8, that love is a debt that we actually owe each other. In order to uh, fulfill this command, in order to uh, fulfill this debt, we must not think uh, more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, which is also written in Romans 12, 3, but we are to consider others as more significant than ourselves uh, in Philippians 2, 3. Again, we see the Samaritan is the one who is actually fulfilling the law of God, whereas the priest and the Levite are just merely going through the motions. For the Samaritan considers this half-dead Jewish man who despised him as more significant than himself. And not only does the Samaritan of the parable do this, but the Lord God, again, he does this to us through Jesus Christ. He considers us worthy to receive his love. The very best resource that is poured out upon us uh, for our good is the perfect eternal love enjoyed by our triune God. It is this love that our God delights to share with us. And we actually witness Jesus praying for us to enjoy this in his high high priestly prayer in John 17, uh, 17, 26, uh, which says this, I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Listen to that for a second. The love with which you have loved me may be in them. This is the God the Father talking to God, or God the Son, sorry, talking to God the Father. And they experience get to, and get to enjoy the perfect love that is shared with them through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This love is a love that God welcomes us into, that he is delighted to share with us, that Jesus is praying for us to enjoy. This perfect love is what is lavished upon us, and it is this perfect love that does a work in us. It changes us, changes us from being enemies of God to being sons and daughters of God. It is a love that secures a place for us in the land where all uh, things are made new. Where there is no more death, sorrow, suffering, pain. But where we get to enjoy dwelling with our God forevermore. In whose presence there is fullness of joy. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 1611. But this love again was not cheap to give. For in giving us this love, God is giving us himself. And this is the, the, promise, uh, the central promise of the gospel. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And we see the fullness of this promise come in Jesus Christ as he freely gives his life for us. Then once resurrected and ascended, and ascended, he pours forth the gifts that he won for us, which come by the Holy Spirit being poured into our hearts. Jesus counted the cost, and he freely chose to share all his riches with us. And Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 8 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 
What a glorious and awesome God we serve, willing to bestow the most wonderful gifts upon us. So let us therefore go and reflect his glory to our neighbors by walking in the footsteps by the power of the Holy Spirit that he has poured out on us. Let us be willing to share with them our God-given resources, the love of God that was poured into our hearts. Let them question why we are so generous and why we are so willing to give of ourselves. And let us be quick to answer that it is because we serve a generous God who has not held back anything from us. But he has freely and happily given himself to us. And he freely and happily gives himself to you as well. So as we come to a close, I want to mention two things. One is that we have seen that being a good neighbor consists in having a willingness to be compassionate, a willingness to be inconvenienced, and a willingness to be abundantly uh, abundantly generous. But we cannot cultivate this willingness on our own, as I said earlier. Therefore, take the time this year to pray to the Lord, to work this in your hearts. The Holy Spirit needs to work this in us. And and if we go before the Lord, know that he delights to hear these prayers and he delights to work this in us. Ask him to help us shift that perspective. Give us that willingness. Secondly, loving a good neighbor is uh, loving... Uh, living as a good neighbor, I'm sorry, living as a good neighbor, uh, is an ethic that is specific to the kingdom of God, of which you belong. If you have confessed faith in Christ, you belong to this kingdom. You no longer are a citizen here of this world. And the call is to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the the kingdom of God, uh, that is living in the kingdom of God. Whether it costs you your political views, your social policy views, your money, your time, your reputation, whether it costs you your life. The call is to love your neighbor as yourself because you have been loved in this way. You have been loved in this way by Christ. So the question is, are you going to live in this way? Or are you going to follow the world's ethic? The world's ethic that says, seek after your own happiness no matter the cost to your neighbor. Make sure you impose your will on this world and dominate those who hold a different view from you rather than showing compassion and seeking to understand them in their pain seeking to show them the love that you have been shown in Christ. Are you going to live as the priest and the Levite? Or are you going to live as the one who has been shown mercy? Because you have been shown mercy. Let's pray. Father God, this is a hard call that you have given us, but it is not a call that you uh, have not also taken upon yourself. For in loving, uh, in, in loving us, Lord, you have loved us perfectly. You have given up of yourself so that we might get to enjoy the fullness of your love. Father, therefore, we pray that you would cultivate in us a willingness. Help us to, uh, to step forward into this new year, fueled by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, fueled by his love, to go and show um, our neighbors what it means uh, to, to be loved by you, the mighty, awesome, generous God who is happy to pour out his love upon us. Lord, give us the grace to do that, uh, do that this year. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.